Again, episode three of Monitor Keeping Podcast. I'm Alan Stevens. Uh, my co-host Kai is also here, and today we're going to have on a guest. And we just want to thank you guys that are tuning in and listening. Uh, just remember, we are brought to you by the uh, NPR Network. So go ahead if you're not familiar with them, Morelia Python Radio Network. Uh, check out their website. Check out their other podcasts that they're uh, a part of and bringing to you. And please look around those pages, see if there's something else you like. All right. Kai, how you doing? Hey, not too bad. Um, like uh, like we said, we got a, we got a guest today and uh, we're going to do things a little bit differently than I think you've seen most podcasts uh, are doing right now. Um, um, to be honest, uh, a lot of the people are being brought on as just breeders or someone uh highly experienced with um you know keeping and breeding monitors but this one we want to attend to the beginners a little bit so um what we're having today is sort of a or an actual q a sessions where uh, we bring on someone that i haven't really known too long maybe a good month and a half give or take um and uh he's just getting into monitors himself and i believe he's got questions that a lot of people can relate to um, you know, just starting off. And I, I know a lot of times we talk about some, you know, like detailed stuff that uh, you're, you may not understand or your your uh, your process of thinking and what you're doing right now. Um, what we're talking about doesn't even pertain to you. So, you know, it, it might just come going out in one ear and out the other sort of um, where this stuff may stick to you just because it may be what you're needing an answer to or you know, just as far as gathering information on what you want to do as far as growing with your monitor and everything like that. Um, so that's what we are trying to bring on today as far as uh, as my friend uh, Cody Allen. And um, he's just, like I said, just getting into monitors. And he's got some questions that, uh, that hopefully you guys can all relate to. Cody, you there? Hey, yes, Cody, sir. You yes, sir. All Thank right. you all for letting me be a part of this today, man. Hey, no worries. I uh, appreciate yeah, you for pleasure. coming on at just a, a, a short notice um, and also, you know, being able to um, just uh, kind of give your all a little bit. Nothing too. I, ho I hope it's not nothing too demanding, but. Um, right. Yeah, we really would really trying to get my camera to work right now, but it, I don't know if it's going to work. Um, <laughs> but yeah, everything is. Uh, everything's just sort of flowing right now. OK, it's all right. Um, so yeah, as we getting started here, um, you know, is, is there anything that I guess you would like to, um, add about yourself first or, you know, just a little background on what you do, what you're doing, what you're keeping? Yeah. Uh, let's see about six months ago. Um, I actually do heating in there and I ran across one of my customers that, uh, Kai knows real well out, out in North Carolina and had a just a very impressive reptile collection at that time you know i love dogs love animals so i didn't didn't know too much about it and he had two massive aldabra tortoises and uh, i thought they were fake at first i've never seen a tortoise that big and 
Yeah. So that that immediately got my interest in it. And uh, within, I would say, three or four weeks, um, I actually bought, a, at that time, a three-and-a-half-year-old Aldabra tortoise, and that kind of got me started in the reptiles. Um, Man, a, a month and you already had an Aldabra. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the, the addiction is real, dude. <laughs> it um, is. It is. But uh, he also has, you know, he had a few ball pythons that, that he don't really mess with. It was more or less a trade. His, I guess his poor take is, you know, breeding reticulated pythons. Um, so, I, you know, after a few months of having my Aldabra, uh, me and the wife talked and we decided we'd like to get a little bit more just just for a fun hobby, in a sense. And so I got a ball python right off the bat from him. I would say two months later, I got a female ball python. And then I would say maybe within about the same month from that, the wife wanted one. So she got a bearded dragon. In that same week of getting the bearded dragon, that same guy persuaded me to get a retic. So I got a baby reticulated python. He's a male. Um, and then actually had a, another ball python come in from Texas. And then within about another month of that, got hooked up with Kai. I always wanted a monitor. And we ended up going with the mangrove monitors. I think they're an awesome species. Um, to be able to not commit to something that's going to get as big as an Asian water monitor I think that was something that fit me a little bit better. Um, and same year. Same year. Yeah. Yeah. yeah don't uh, get me wrong. I love Salvatore's, but it's just like I couldn't do it. You know. Yeah. I'm already going to have you know a retic that his mom was 16 foot long, his dad was eight foot, so he can be within those ranges depending on how yeah. you feed him. And then you know my Aldabra, he can get up to four or five hundred pounds within about I would say 30 years or so. Yeah. Um, so I, I got my hands full. <laughs> I didn't want to get I didn't want to get too big into it, but absolutely too big low. into it. You jumped yeah. right in. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, I went ahead and put a cap on it real quick. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. I absolutely ended up, love he ended it, man. Up sweet. He ended up tapping. I mean, he ended up uh, putting the the cherry right on top with getting a little mangrove monitor, which is <clears> um, you know it's not always like uh, I, to be honest, I don't really recommend mangroves at, as a first time beginner monitor, but Captive breads make a difference since they're a, a lot easier to, you know, have come around and, and raise up and stuff like that. And I kind of do a little bit of imprinting with them. So yeah. um, I work with them almost uh, like habitually, regularly with feeding and changing. And I even do a little bit of soaking period where they're kind of getting a feel of what's outside and just being played with a little bit. But uh, for the most part, I just kind of keep them simple. Um, and those are kind of the details that I wanted you to understand a little bit, not, not in a sense where like I'm just trying to, you know, um, like dictate how you have things or more so just to give you a breakdown of what I'm kind of doing with them as far as um, raising them and and getting little babies, you know, right. um, a lot of a lot of us right now. And, you know, that's all the new keepers too. Um, everybody's got little baby Niles and little baby Savannah's and and little baby water monitors and um, they have a lot of little questions or sorry, a lot of questions where, um, you know, it, it, it really is um, some of it's uh, really important where it's just about the like, humidity and heat and, and eating. And some stuff is just about taming or working with. And um, it's uh, with, with, with you here, hopefully we can cover some of those topics for them and, and get the ball rolling on that. Okay. Um, yes, sir. Now, uh, is there a, I guess the, we've gone through some of the details and, you know, some of these questions, you kind of already get 
an answer got an answer to but is there anything that is uh regularly on your mind that you're always wondering about or like a set of questions that you possibly have i think i think the biggest thing and i'll kind of i guess jump over a few real quick which i know we can bounce back to i know in episode one y'all covered a lot of the basic you know questions and topics on as far as husbandry and feeding um which of course we'll still go over that because i'm all ears i'd love to learn as much as i can about them but i guess we'll just jump straight to taming um this uh, is that's a that's a big one you know that's yeah a, it is it's all it's always on it's on everybody's mind as far as you know getting a, a beginner um now like myself um i think like with anybody new getting into uh, like a water monitor you you see the the end result or you see the tame really nice beast that someone's carrying around or they brought around and you fell in love with it right it's a intelligent yeah. beast that's that's calm and um somewhat uh, really cool to have right um and so a lot of people come into buying a, a monitor lizard and and really hoping that that's what they're going to get but in truth they're probably going to get some wild caught animal that you know isn't so um workable and needs to be acclimated for one um went through hell before it got to you and so you then have to essentially build its trust from all the horrible stuff that essentially happened to it prior to it getting to you right um, and right. so you know uh, that's where perspective and and getting a feel of what the animal went through then you can kind of get an idea on how you should approach it um so uh, I, I don't know before i really get into like ideas and what i kind of want some people to look at um alan is there is there anything you want to add before i kind of get into this large spiel a little bit well hmm yeah this is a big one you know for me i i can't necessarily say i focus on it and i do get this question from uh people every now and again about handling your animals and how long do you have to wait before you you know once you bring them home do you go hands-on and start working with them? And uh, the honest truth for me is I just – I kind of read the animal. I let them kind of tell me when is okay. Uh, I do this in different ways. When they're babies, I leave them alone. If they want to come see what I'm doing, they're more than welcome to come out on their own when they're ready to check out you know, if I'm just refilling water bowls or adding food and food is a great one because just doing that, just going in there and feeding them, you know, I could be uh, shaking bugs in a bag and at first they'll run and hide. And over, I don't know, the course of a month or so, they learn that the bag or that sound means they're getting fed. And now their little heads are poking out, you know, they're waiting for the bugs to drop. So the massacre can begin yep. and you do this on a daily basis. They start to learn what you're about. And once they get used to it, you know, you can start doing other things. Um, you can start moving around in their cage a little bit. And I do slow movements. Usually I continue to try to ignore them. Um, some animals I don't really even make contact. eye contact with right away. It's not super important. It's just, you know, something in passing that I, I just focus on what I'm doing in there. Um, I've tried to take just a picture of animals sometimes and it had certain animals freak out just because of phones mm. in my hand, something about that phone or that lens to them sets them off. 
you know, I've heard it said that maybe those lenses on the back look like an eyeball or just a foreign object. Um, you know, and I just take it slow, whatever it is that I'm doing with it, whatever animals, I take it slow. Uh, I let them get used to me. They know that I'm not, even though I have the ability to get in there and mess with them, I don't have to, I can, in a sense, respect their space a little bit. And once that trust grows a little bit, I will offer food, but maybe I'll make them chase it. And then the next time I'll make them chase it in the direction I want them to go. Uh, leading up to the point where I can get them to come out maybe onto my hand and feed them there, then let them go right back into their cage. And again, like it's this, sometimes I don't handle a animal unless I have to till they're maybe six months of age. Um, because the end result that I'm going for is that an animal that I'm keeping will actually trust me. I don't have to break that trust and rebuild it. Just have to wait. Now, if there's an emergency, you got to go hands on. I've had to do that too. And then, I wouldn't say you start from scratch. I think they're pretty smart. Um, they know they survived the encounter um, and you didn't necessarily hurt them. So, yeah, my, my approach is really laid back. And I think part of that is because my focus in the collection has to be on so many different animals that I don't. I, the temptation would be a lot greater if I was working with one monitor um, yeah. to pass by that cage every day and look in, you know see yeah. who's looking back at me and what's going on. That would be almost impossible to resist. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but yeah, like, that's uh, kind of my approach. So what, what, just, tell me about the spiel, Kai. I'm ready for it. <laughs> no, I mean, as far as, you know, um, now I guess, I guess getting into the, cause me, you and I are breeders or we're, where we have a ton, you know? Um, but uh, to you guys that just have the one or two and, you know, you do want to take that, time that you do have and uh to be honest i i envy you i wish i just had one or two again where i can kind of uh, focus on them a, a lot more almost 100 percent, you know but um now it kind of days i do things a little bit quicker and a bigger bigger scheme of things but you know i wish it was just that simple now um for you guys that just have the one solo pet and you want to really work with them um as far as being progressive with your animals uh that initial thing getting an idea of perspective of what they went through and how you should kind of approach them is like what Alan said, kind of move slow, work on their base. Um, and really, uh, if you can get food and, or have them realize that you're the food giver and go from there, um, that's going to be your, your main entry point as far as building the relationship. Um, now, as far as like, uh, like an analogy to kind of go through, um, this was explained to me, years ago so i would say when i was like 16 or 18 or something like that and now i'm 32 so and i use this all the time um david kirshner explained this to everybody online where it's kind of like this um squirrel analogy where um you're gonna go and you're gonna go to the park right and you want this wild squirrel to come to you you know and you essentially want to befriend it right um now this same case with the monitor lizard same very similar thing. This animal is wild. Um, it hasn't really gained to trust you yet. It doesn't really know you. Now, same thing with the going back to the squirrel analogy where you're going to go to the park and you may not get it to eat from you initially and you have to take your time with it. Um, and going and grabbing it and going to chase the squirrel down is just going to make the squirrel um, fear you even more or run from you even more. Now, um, 
you know, applying that with your monitor lizard, it's the same thing where if you're going to go into reaching it and grabbing it and pulling it out of hides and essentially disrupting its sort of peace, acclimation period and all that, um, then that's hindering your process on building trust and a relationship with your animal. And so going back to the analogy with the squirrel, if you were to sit there on the bench or just still and you place food near you and the squirrel is going to kind of pick that up. It'll smell it. It'll probably come by and eventually pick up a nut here or there or pick up something. And that's where you now have built a sort of trust with that animal. Instead of running and grabbing it, you then just place food there. And eventually in time, you know, that squirrel will pick up on that. It's It sees you as, dang, I can get a free meal. I don't, I'm not going to get killed by this guy. And I'm going to be surviving a little bit easier. And a lot of the animals will pick up on that. And so um, going back to your monitor lizard, you want to kind of, kind of sort of do the same thing where um, as much as you can, you're going to be hands off, not really grabbing it unless you really have to. Um, and really just placing food on in certain areas and getting it to getting it to be used, used to you doing that. Um, placing food in front of its favorite hides. And sometimes it's a little bit of manipulation where I fed the animal a ton. Now, let's say it doesn't want to take food from you. And you're at a standpoint where nothing is uh, going your way. And even what we're telling you is not working because this animal has been um, traumatized by everything. Now, these are monitors, how I can describe them as frantic or... Um, just extremely abused before they got to you. So the side of you, they'll defecate, they'll regurgitate their food, they'll just stop eating, or they won't even eat in front of you. And I think a lot of beginners deal with this sometimes where uh, an animal won't do anything in front of you until you walk out the room and you're right. peeping from the door. You know, um, And when you're dealing with this, uh, in manipulating... I, I, I hate to use the word manipulating, but that's that basically what I'm doing. I don't want to dumb it down or... or, or you know, have it used any other way. But what I'm doing is feeding the animal well and then starving it for a good week, maybe even 10 days, but a good week is enough. The animal is going to get really, really hungry. And it's mental trigger whenever it sees food again. Now that it's really hungry, it'll probably surpass all its fears and lunge out and grab the food. That is your thread number one. So um, Kevin at Nerd mentions building threads to build yep. a strong rope in in your relationship right and so that would be thread number one um where it's now just taking food off your tongs it it ate in front of you sort of right and you're now gaining ground sort of where it's okay with your presence a little bit you've now passed the the stage of it just freaking out and won't even eat in front of you. So you're sort of getting, gaining ground now. And then, you know, after a little bit of this, some weeks of just trying to tongue feed it like that, you can do the same thing, get it to a hungry stage, maybe a few days without eating and try to lure it onto your hand. This would be thread number two or uh, an added thread to your current rope that you're trying to build with trust, right? That, tr that, that rope or that, that, uh, that whole sense of building good relationship all 
relies on every little positive interaction interaction that you actually have with this animal going forth. Um, you can always go back a few steps, okay? Now, as you're, you're gaining ground and you go to reach in and grab it or there's issues and you have to deal with it health-wise and you have to double-check on it, every time you do that, you set yourself back a couple stages. So if that animal is not going to continually tongue feed from you and you've pushed your bounds, you can essentially take a couple steps back and it's going to take a little bit more time to train, a little bit more time to work with. And uh, patience is key here, okay? Time, all great things take time, all great things take some stress and some worry about, but man, if, once you get past this, I mean, and it, it could take a while. It can take weeks, it can take months, or the kicker is it can also be never where an animal is like, it hates you. It, it'll, I have animals that I have for seven years and won't eat in front of me all the time, maybe once in a blue moon, but you know, for the most part, I, I leave that animal alone. I've, I've understand that that's the way it is. And it sucks that I have to grab that animal often. So it sets me back every time, all the time, rather than me being patient with it. I, I do have to pull them apart. I'm, I'm, I'm breeding them. So I have to touch them or grab them to make sure they're okay. And every time I do that, that sets me back. So even I, even though I'm well-trained and I should be able to just work with these animals, they're all individuals as well. So if you want to also take that into account, Man, you can apply everything that we're telling you here, but it still may not work because that animal is just the way that animal is going to be. It, yep. it's, it's never going to come around again. And we have those, you know, and we and even like till today, I know how I should keep. I should have a bunch of soil, dense humidity, great basking, optimum temperatures, but also some cools as well. But there's times where I have to revert back to kind of like a beginner or or you know, just um, simple bare setups, right? Where it's kind of like just a little couple inches of soil, couple hides. And what that did was just bring my animals out more because they were stricken from being able to hide so much. So in in return, it's for my convenience, but I am keeping the animal from doing some stuff that it should naturally want to do, which is hide all the time or right. things like that. And um, real so quick, Kai, to... Uh... To touch on that a little bit, because I know I've had this conversation with you, is um, because we keep so many animals, sometimes it's easier for us to keep an animal simple, especially a problem animal. So you can check on them when you need to. You can see food disappearing. You can get, you know, in and out with uh, water changes, whatever you need to do in there. Um, but I would also because another thing we've talked about. Uh, that we should bring up on the show is there are a few animals. Sometimes it's the species, uh, but there are a few individuals too that you cannot let them go too long without eating. And there, there are a few individuals that will uh, hide themselves to death. And then they don't necessarily hide and then just die in that hide. The thing is they, they will stay hidden for so long that you so might – Right. You yeah. might come up on a, a natural change just in your season. Something else changes uh, that you're not quite aware of. But let's say the the temperature outside, it's springtime, it's getting warmer. Uh, the ambience start heating up. Um, something changes for this animal. And so where it was just operating at a, a temperature that it could survive in that hole, now it, because of the added heat, its body's running a little hotter, running a little faster. Unfortunately, it's at the point where it's missed enough 
meals enough times gone by where it can't make up that um, difference without assistance. So you do want to, that's an extreme. Most animals, you let them get hungry, they're monitors, they're going to come out and eat. But there's a few, I've noticed it with, um, with tree monitors that there's a fine line. You gotta, you gotta give them with the uh, wild caught stuff. So just wanted to touch on that. Yeah. I think it's cause you know, they just can't hold so much weight, um, Mm -hmm. you know, stored as far as reserves go. So as far as dehydrating, I think it just happens a little bit faster with those guys at dehydrating loss of loss of muscle mask and, and body tone, you know, not just, Mm -hmm. not just dehydrating, but that all flows within the same chart as, as they're losing nutrients and losing um, water and stuff like that. Um, Is there any more part of taming that you would like us to get into um, Cody? I mean, that's, that's pretty much it. I, before even getting this, uh, I was recommended from that same guy to, to use you. Um, he, you know, he definitely told me, he said, please stay away from wild culture if you can. And it's one taming process is a lot harder, but two, you, you can risk that chance of bringing something into your collection, whether it's a disease or, you know, something like that. You just, you just don't know. Um, that was my biggest fear. I just want to keep everything as healthy as I can, but I've listened to you. I've watched, I can't tell you how many videos with Kevin at Nerd and the guy that I actually get everything from and talk to. Um, I talk to him on a pretty regular you know, basis. He's best friends with Kevin. So he brings baby water monitors home and they can eat out of his hand, crawl up his hand, which I know mangroves and well, I mean, I guess all monitors are a little different, but I guess they have a little bit more confidence um, at a younger yeah. age. And then, you know, Kevin's Kevin's hands on out of the egg with them. But and that seems to work for him. Mangroves from when you watch videos of other monitors at young ages and then you get a mangrove there, yeah. they're totally different, man. And uh, right. I try to do the best that I can with, you know, everything that I've learned. And I still, you know, every day when I have free time throughout work or when I get home, watch videos or read on discussion forums. And, you know, obviously if there's any questions, always you're probably my first go-to, but I've had to take a little bit more <clears throat> out of the enclosure Right yeah. when I first got it, just like you said, you're not necessarily making it vulnerable, but if if you give it that chance to hide, it will. And right. I would say, I don't know if I if I sent you that picture on the first night. I can't remember if it was the first or second, but it actually tone fed right off the bat. Um, right. And I think that's got a little bit to do with it coming from captive, you know, captive bread and you having your imprint on it as well. That definitely helps. And right then I was like, OK, well. This is totally different than anything else I've got. And I know patience is key when it comes to things like that. I just don't want to overdo it. Um, And I've done things, I guess, very similar to what you're talking about. And then also try to put in things from some of Kevin's videos. I took a old T-shirt from work one day and bought it up there. And I've got a little hammock that it can go to just on a cool side because it, I mean, you know, they love to climb. So I put it on that left side and I come home and I said, well, where in the hell is that at? I'm sitting here looking around. I can't find it. And I reached my hand in there, changed some couple, uh, changed the water around and the shirt moves. And I was like, all right, I ain't gonna mess with you. I know you're sleeping in the shirt. <laughs> and, uh, three or four days later, when it came to feeding, I fed it, uh, little pinkies and some small minnows and it did great. I mean, it's, it's eating out of tongs fine. Uh, I yeah. will, I will say that they are extremely intelligent animals. As far as if I'm sitting in there, we've got a dog gate at that door. So the dogs don't come in. 
while I have any, you know, any animal in my hand just to prevent, uh, well, not even necessarily to prevent, but just to keep everybody safe, not necessarily saying anything's going to happen. But my wife can come in through the doorway and that mangrove monitor will stop looking at me and stare at her and will not eat. It will not take anything out of tongs. It'll completely lose interest. Yeah. If anything, it'll go to hide. And she looks at me. She said, well, why does it do that? And I said, from what I've learned, them being in the wild, everything is out to get them. So they're just, you know, extremely intelligent, high alert. And like y'all yeah. said, you know, slow movements is the best that I've found with it. It's not, I've never reached in just to grab it. Um, I have since it, I guess, gets used to my scent. I'll put my hand flat in the enclosure, leave it, and actually play on my phone while I'm looking away. Um, I know with that, I'll feel it, which I won't even acknowledge it when it does. I'll feel it come up to me, and you can feel the tongue flicks on my hand. And I'm trying to trying to avoid getting bitten, but I'm giving it that confidence as, you know, if you're going to do yeah. it, you're going to do it. But I feel like you're not, so hopefully you won't. Hopefully I fed <laughs> you so you're, so you're staying full. And one day I was doing that, and I was just scrolling through my phone, and I was looking down, and I felt it crawl on my hand. And I slowly turned my head and looked at it, picked my hand up, and it was just – you know, like you said, it's just one thread at a time and it's kind of started to get used to me. Um, but yeah. you know, that's, that's maybe once a week. I really try to keep it to a minimum. The, I did put it uh, for a soak the other day cause it's, it's in shed right now and going in there right off the bat, it's a little skittish. You put it in a tub, you know, you know, obviously it, it swims around and I just keep my hand in the tub and it'll come up to you every now and then hang on your hand and then just kind of go off and swim. So I know every animal's different. And even yeah. if I was to get another one from you, it could be totally opposite. Like you said, it could have its own personality where it's like, you know, I don't want nothing to do with you. I don't want to eat in the same room with you. Because if I am feeding and my wife or a dog walks by the doorway that is like 15 feet behind me, it completely yeah. stops. It wants nothing to do with me at that moment. Um, right. And it'll, it'll, uh, within time, right? So there are most monitors, they have this kind of phase, um, and it's just like a lot of new baby stuff or anything like that. They're just kind of shy to the world, right? Yeah. Um, but give yourself uh, several months or maybe that first year, two years on some species. Let them gain some size. And they'll know that they've gained some size. They basically become much more bolder. Um, yeah. Some start right off the bat and they start, you know, running up your arm for food. No problem. And and they're really easy to work with but you know, some which i will say that's intimidating because they're fast man <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> i'm like please fast, please man. don't run off and jump because you can be hard to get <laughs> right and uh, i got mine uh so mine are just like the velociraptor sort of right where yeah, yeah. Uh, once the tongue is in session and uh, they he sees the the bucket or the clear cup full of food it, it's basically on right yeah um and man, I, I actually got to dodge and make sure I, I tuck my pinkies every single single time I close cages and yep. I'm not really getting, yeah, I, I was bit not too long ago, maybe like two months ago and, and I bled everywhere. Um, but yeah, uh, now as, as far as like, you know, other, other aspects, uh, as to the taming goes, um, did you happen to have any other things you wanted to add on or? questions that you had pertaining to like other taming tips and things like that before uh, we move on to the next question i mean i think that's you know pretty much about it i know like i said before not only is every animal completely different as far as personality i have snakes with different personalities um and they're all kept the same just about other than the retic and uh and I, I mean monitors different monitors or breeds of monitors can have 
totally different, you know, level of confidence. Um, other than that, does I will ask you this: Does the scenting thing work? Kevin from Nerd in one of his videos says that can help, and it seems to have helped mine. I mean, I find mine sleeping in the shirt all the time, which I yeah. think I left it in there three or four days and took it out. Um, so I really don't do any of those any suggestions that anybody else really makes as far as like soaking them for interaction or putting your shirt or sock in there. It's not that, um, I just don't do them. You know, I kind of go with what I'm aiming for is a truly tamed animal, not something that's, um, like, like when it's in the, in the tub and it's running up your arm and, uh, you're trying to work with it that way. Um, the animal's really just trying to get out of the tub on you, you know? Um, it's not, not all the time is it that's actually it being tamed um it is forced to work with you and you are able to you know get a feel of the animal and they get a feel of you but you know i want an animal that i can kind of just go into the cage reach in there and pull it out without having to manipulate any scenario you know um that's what i truly want but you know going back to those other methods i think they help out a, a, a they can help out a little bit um, I think the smell of yourself or the smell of the, sh- the shirt, it'll, it definitely can pick that up. Um, as far as making it tame though, or, and things like that, that's, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother. I think it just can get used to your smell and then may not freak out so much. Um, but as far as changing the animal's entire attitude, uh, I'm not, I, I'm, I think it's, it takes a little bit more work than that. That's right. That's right. Interesting like said, uh, experiment you could try, Cody. Start throwing uh, an approved clothing item of your wife's and or your girlfriend. Um, you say, I don't remember who's a fiance. Take something of hers that she's not going to miss and throw it in there and see if your animal starts coming around a little bit. <laughs> she she said that. She said, you want to throw something of mine in there? And I said, uh, do you want to ever handle it? She said, as fast as that thing is right now, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> it only gets bigger, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, and she she's slowly coming around. I mean, you know, she she used to shy away from the retic just because, you know, you get a ball python, which not trying to get off topic too much. You get a ball python, they're kind of a pet rock. You know, they, they got a little bit of personality, not much. You get a retic, they're similar to monitors as far as the intelligence. They watch you. If mine is out in the tank and you walk around, it watches you walk around. And you can see its eyes moving, and that used to, it used to intimidate her and um, working with it slowly but surely, which is I've never had a problem with it since I've got it. You know, just basic tips that you got to avoid from anything happening. They basically have four moods, which is sleeping, uh, feeding, defensiveness, and then thinking. So I try to keep them in the thinking mood as much as possible. And now I would say within the last month and a half, she that's probably her favorite animal as of now, other than the tortoise. Um, she handles it pretty regularly. So I doubt I'll be throwing anything of hers in there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I don't really use, uh, any, any, um, anything else other than just being in the room, being in the cage with them. Um, there's been a few instances, maybe there was a case with a group of monitors. I had to go hands on with them, uh, because they would hide in the door frame of one of the cages it was a it was a larger cage and they could actually slip into this little part in the door frame and um so every day when i would have to go in there for general maintenance i would have to catch these monitors popping out of this door frame and it wasn't a very good design on my part of course i didn't know they could fit in there when when i first built the cage 
sneaky little guys, but they could uh, turn themselves into little pancakes and get in where they needed to. But it did force daily interaction. Uh, what I did notice through that, and this was, was so that they wouldn't run out into the rest of the warehouse and I'd be, you know, hours and hours trying to catch monitors all over the place. Um, the daily forced interaction, I can now open the door. I actually didn't change anything. And now I open the door and I can kind of like put my hand on them and they scoot out. They go right back into the cage. They crawl across to the far side. Let me do my maintenance. And, um, you know, I don't ever force anything else on them but that. Um, but it seems to have worked to a certain degree. And they're, they're still very shy, but I see them out a lot more now. Um, and then a group that I usually have a revolving raise up group somewhere in the house other than the warehouse and it's in my my kids room so these animals are usually up a half an hour before the lights actually come on um but they get to see the daily routine especially with the kids being at home for for the uh, distance learning and whatnot um so now they're out all the time in the daytime they watch us we watch them uh the problems i have with them sometimes yeah. it takes nothing but just routine yeah right yeah just routine and you know they know when food's coming uh they'll be sitting at the front waiting for it i gotta watch them sometimes when we open the door because they will come flying out and they're on a they're on a dresser uh so you know there's about a three foot <laughs> drop once they're gone they're gone they're gonna be behind something yeah right i've yeah. gotten good at uh catching them and uh, as long as i can keep focused on the food i can actually catch them when that happens and wiggle the food in front of their face, put them right back in the cage and they don't skip a beat. But, um, but other than that, yeah, I, you know, a big thing I think is allowing the animals to see you, yeah, um, to see you doing your natural movements, um, walking past, uh, just your everyday activities, um, that you might not even notice that you're doing. They might be watching you do, um, They don't even have to watch you. You can, um, they'll just feel the vibration. Right. It's like you're leaving, right? And they'll know, like, all right, I, he, th- that door is closed. It made a vibra- vibration on that part of the house. I mean, they're they're that in tune to everything going on, even if you don't really think about it, right? They're, they're probably sleeping or they're just, it's lights out, right? Right. Um, they're, they're in tune to that. They're, my, mine are anyways. It's like, I'll leave the house and I'll, you know, close the main door. That makes a certain type of noise and vibration, and then I'll forget something, right? And I'll come back to the house, and all of them would be out. That's crazy. Yeah, and so um, I'll run back. I'm like, hey, you guys were just not all out 20 minutes ago when I was home. So, yeah, man, it's absolutely uh, true. It's a little bit of everything, you know. I, I don't get me wrong, like those methods, I think they help out a little bit, but um, in some cases. An, an animal can show you that it's calm, right? And it's more so of a, a lot of lizards play dead. So they're more so of fear stricken and it's not really moving a ton. So that can be a misread too. You know, you, you don't want an animal that's like got its head down and um, it's essentially right. either breathing all hard and hissing at you or it's actually not at all. And it's kind of now playing dead and um, you don't really want that either. You want an animal that's what you would say confident in being out. So it's got its head up, it's tongue flicking, it's coming out and about. And when you do go to release it onto the floor, it hangs out rather than ducking away and going to the, the nearest hideaway. 
and that's where you get really you know your your true tamed animal you're truly uh, what it is is it's it's not um it's not controlled and manipulated anyway you know and i will say i will say it's cool that y'all touch base as far as the routines i really didn't even think about that until now i would say the first week of having uh the mangrove i would walk into the room and it might be on the elevated hide you know on the basking side and you could see it just like i guess a lizard out in the wild it would move to the side of the log where you couldn't see it but it could see you and yeah i would just pick it up my eye but i knew not to just i I think one of the things I picked up on is just eye contact. Try to try to avoid it if possible. That can either scare them or intimidate them. Intimidate yeah, them. One, one of the two. Thing. Yep. And yeah, uh, that's that's where obviously all the animals are in one room. Um, the tortoise was in there during the winter months. He's finally outside now. But uh, my dogs are in there too. We have three pits and a Great Dane, so they're all in kennels in there. And within I would say two weeks, going in there and letting the dogs out first time. You know, right when you get home. And then just doing quick checkups on snakes. You don't have to be in a snake tank every single day. You can kind of see what you need to do as far as spot cleaning or water. Right. Um, for the most part, it's just feed like, you know, once a week with them. And it got comfortable. It just started realizing, okay, well, I guess, you know, he doesn't, he's yeah. not going to do anything to me. And he would just stay on the log. Um, now, if I'm in, like I said, if I'm in a room and his tank is shut or him or her, that tank is shut and my wife walks in it'll still move and it, it i guess it's just like y'all said it slowly gets used to your routine that normal yeah. movement of, of in and out um one thing i do want to ask you too can you relate to them as far as snakes is and i guess a demeanor to when you know if they're either on you or if you have the tank open and they're walking around staying i really don't know how the best way to put this as far as just i guess a comfortable position long tongue flicks um, cause I know with, I can relate to snakes. If a snake is, if you're holding a snake and you just get the smallest little tongue flick and it's just looking at you and whether it's breathing big or not, it's paranoid. Yeah. It's, it's extremely paranoid, but yeah, if so it's moving on you with long, long tongue flicks, it's comfortable. Is that kind of the same with them? A, a little bit. Right. Uh, I guess some behaviors that are bad, right. Um, yeah. behaviors that are bad are obviously huffing and puffing and, you know, the tail whacking and lunging, all that stuff is bad. Right. But, um, um, the, the slight, the slight subtle tongue flicks or not even that one. It's the one where they hold the two very tips right at the very entrance of the mouth. Mm -hmm. That's a bad one. Okay. Yeah. That's uh that's uh basically very scared, probably ready to attack you and, or both. Um, and essentially you want to, uh, read your, read your next steps from there. You don't want to lunge in or you don't want to reach in when it's currently doing that sense of tongue flicking and it's not even tongue flicking at all where you know it's literally holding it at the very tip of its mouth yeah um and uh, then the positive ones are you know the ones that you're seeing on nerd or anything like that where uh it's the long tongue flicks the sensible ones where they're trying to read up information they're picking up as much as they can um and it's the long thoughtful like it like you can you can see that they're tasting everything you know um those are the good ones but yeah, yeah. A, a little bit in a sense. I, I couldn't say because I don't have never kept retakes that long. Um, right. Yeah. So. Right. Oh, man. I, I do have a pair of retics. They do watch you. You know, I can go into half the uh, the other snakes cages that I have, the carpet pythons. Uh, half the time I'm waking them up, you know, unless they smelled food prior to. Yeah. You know, I could touch them on the back and, and then they're, oh, somebody else is in here. Um, 
But with the retics, you know, you can see that little pupil in their eyeball yeah. uh, moving around and watching you. And you can you can see how they breathe. Like you said, you can see the posture they take, um, what their tongue is doing. And you're right. They are very intelligent. And I think while not the same as monitors, you still can get a grasp of what an animal's feeling. If you spend enough time working with it and you're trying to be perceptive, you can you can tune in to kind of how they're feeling. If it's um, a relaxed posture that they're taking uh, or if they're, they feel threatened or frightened and whether or not they're going to try to defend themselves as opposed to run away. You know, a lot yeah. of times with monitors, if they're facing kind of curved or in the opposite direction, they're going to want to run away as well. If, if you got them cornered and there's no one else for the, uh, nowhere else for them to go, they might curve towards you where not only can they get to you one way and bite you if they need to, but they can also give you a nice flick. Um, so yeah, just those things you have to be aware of. And oh. I, now I, that being said, I have one old blind Timor monitor <laughs> that his first reaction is to bite and grab first. Then he has to figure out you're not food, but I, I give him a pass because, you know, you can look yeah. in his eyes and you see he can't see you. So, yeah, um, no, I think that pretty much covers any question I had as far as taming, which I'm sure, you know, over the time, there's other things that will present themselves that I might have questions on. But um, yeah, no worries, man. I, I think the biggest thing is really is just patience, allow it to build its confidence, get used to your routine. Right. Um, and it just. You Whatever you thought that monitor lizard was possibly going to be when you first got it, throw that out the window. Oh, yeah. No, it's totally awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, it um, will come, though. It will come with time. Oh, yeah. Working yeah. with it. Yeah. All right, man. Uh, next uh, next question that you have happen to have? Uh, let's see. Try not to talk too much about stuff that I know y'all covered in episode one. Um, and I guess we talked a little bit as far as the enclosure setup, try to keep it simple with, you know, not necessarily hatchlings, but younger monitors right off the bat. Uh, I'll, I'll go to you too. Cause I think I picked this up on episode one, as far as the substrate. Um, I know yeah. every monitor is different as far as enclosure. I know your mangroves are, I would say almost all the same. Obviously I can't see your collection, but I want to, I think I picked out on something to where y'all were like, you know, whatever is, obviously best for the animal, but best for you based off your location. Cause I don't have, you know, the sources that y'all might have in California. We're on totally opposite coasts yeah. and I've tried mm-hmm. to get mine as similar as I can to you. Now the small changes that I've have done to it, cause I use Cypress mulch for just about anything. And you can just buy that, which is just an organic right. mulch and it has no stain. You can get that at home Depot or Lowe's. Um, yeah. and I also real- got a few bags of sand, I know you said you like the sand and dirt mixture. Yeah. Um, I added that in there with a little bit of cypress mulch on top and then some leaves. Um, I heard you yeah. say that if you have leaves in there, that helps hold the humidity down. Um, not on your cool side, but your hot side. Uh, keep your cool side as dry as possible. Is there anything that I could change on that or is it to where? Um, um, right now, no. So like uh, I kind of mentioned before, uh, babies are kept different. My juveniles are kept a little bit different. And my adults are kept different. Um, and even babies like hatchlings and two months old are kept a little bit different. So mm-hmm. um, for, for me, when I hatch them out, they sit on paper towel for a little while. 
they kind of dry up. I control the humidity. And when they're babies, they're kind of easy to, to maintain, you know, just because they're so small. You just have to keep a little pocket humid for them, for the mangroves anyways. Um, so initially they're on paper towel. And then I move them onto like a sandy soil. And it's not very much. It's just to add the humidity. They've gotten a little bit bigger. And I want to introduce them to soil already. Um, so, you know, there there's those stages there. And then when you get to like the bigger animals, um, once they're a year old, I find that section maturity is right around the corner. I don't really want to be too late on introducing a nest bin to a female. And uh, it also gives them uh, yeah, multiple reasons. But like later on when you're dealing with a larger animal, it's not as easy to just squirt a little corner and that's where your human hide's going to be anymore. Because the animal's gotten so big that that's just a little pocket now. It's not really enough. So right. when the animal's like two feet, you're using soil, like deep amounts of soil, whether it's several inches or you have bins full of dirt. And I, I always really recommend this for the females, especially just because even if you don't want to breed, she's going to go through her normal biology anyways, and mm -hmm. she'll lay. And so... Um, you want to also make sure that the female is essentially learning how to use that, utilize this before it's too late, before she is egg bound or going through the process and she doesn't really have anything that's supporting her, um, which is the nest bin and or deep soil. Um, Great point. So the male can also benefit from this too because he's going to need a revamp. Um, he's going to need to gain some uh, humidity and hydration back. Uh, he will also need to sit in some soil and shed some skin off because it'll just soak up all the moisture when it needs to and it'll fluff right off. It's a, it's a lot. It's crazy how the soil just helps like that, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and now that as we're transitioning from a juvenile or sub-adult and I'm introducing the nest bin, now it's like a heated nesting soil. The, 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 the actual soil is um, precise temperature it's a precise, precise ratio and all that stuff like that with humidity and moisture content. And all that is, is important. So, you know, if you took that and applied it to the babies, though, essentially you'd be putting a little baby in a huge enclosure for, for nothing. It doesn't really need it yet. Um, right. So you go and you, you, can, you can work at it. Now, you know, there, I, I don't want to – I really don't want to take away from any of the, the, the people that are – they want to go all out. Go ahead. I, I I recommend you do it and get your heart out and deck it out as much as you want. Right. And that's you also have to accept that that animal is going to be now in a big cage, kind of wild. Or I mean, it could come around, but yeah. you know, there's a chance that it's going to be a little bit harder for for you to maintain it, watch it. Um, even get to the point where like, let's say if you put a 10 inch lizard with a foot of soil, you're going to, you're going to have a hard time finding that little lizard. <laughs> right? So yeah. it's just, uh, it's, it's, I don't want to, I don't want to, again, I don't want to take away anybody that wants to fully deck out an enclosure and go with it, but you'll just have to have some things that you accept where it may be a little bit longer for the animal to come around or you'll have to accept where, if you want to go and get it and look at it, you have to rip up that cage, you know, that, yeah. that fully decked yeah. out cage that you have. And, um, that that's, that's you, you'll, you'll have to accept that. And, you know, if you want to put it back together you put it back together, but for me, things are easily liftable. I can scoot stuff, um, move plywood or, or have logs that I can just <clears throat> easily scoot aside and peer inside and everything yep. is still 
accessible for the animal. It still provides the necessities that what it needs, um, but it's complementing me and it's making things a little bit more convenient as the keeper. Um, so you want to have things both ways where it's beneficial for you and also beneficial for the animal too, you know? <clears throat> right. And I know one thing that I've seen on some of the pictures of your enclosures, and I want to say Kevin has used it too, but it's not the same as Kevin's. It's like a plastic hardware cloth. It's got holes in it, but it's all plastic. Yeah. And right I've, I've, I've plastic. cut those to fit all around the sides. And then since I've done that, it allows it to, which, I mean, this might be just me reading it's, it wrong. It seems to be out a lot more, just hanging out, whether it's on yeah. the log or on the walls. It'll definitely, you know, be burrowed at night. Um, sometimes I've seen it sleeping inside. It's elevated high in the hollow log. Um, and then I have I have cameras at the house just to check on the animals while I'm gone because there's heating elements. I want to make sure everything is safe and I'll see it out and about. It's either crawling upside down on top of the enclosure or it's crawling on the sides and just, you know, yeah, having, and having it, a fun session. You, and it, it's helped. You gave it, it a, you're taking care of what it, it needs. Now, um, I kind of mentioned this in a, I think in a previous podcast. It's, that's not out yet. Okay. But um, um, what I, I want to kind of get out there is baby monitors, regardless of what people think as far as um, <clears throat> terrestrial or arboreal, or they're kind of all arboreal when they're babies. They mm -hmm. live in high places, tucked away gaps, um, and that's where they feel secure in between in between tight spaces. Uh, I mean, people are finding them, you know, behind the refrigerator over there or, you know, somewhere tucked in a, in a crevice. Um, and that's where their microhabitat is. That's where they're going to feel safe. They'll pop out. Um, and at this age, they're a little bit of a forager, but more so of whatever comes by, they're going to pounce on it. And um, being out foraging as a baby monitor is dangerous. So right. where, where, where you're trying to now is, um, again, what the animal is going to do naturally. And so in the wild, they're going to hang out in trees. And so you want to – what you're applying is that sense of comfortability and – what it would normally do anyways, which is hang, hang up somewhere high. And right. then as it hangs somewhere high, whether, you know, it feels that it's high or not, and it's at eye level and you, uh, you can ask anybody, an animal that's above your head, an animal that's eye level and an animal that's at your feet are all going to act different. The same animal. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Animals above your head would <laughs> automatically claim dominance. Animals that are right at, right at you. It's a little bit more apprehensive, but it's a lot easier to work with. And the animals that are at the very bottom of your feet, they're going to kind of think you're coming after them just because you're approach. Um, right. Yeah. So that's good that you said that, though, because I'll I'll be out on the floor below it because it sits probably on a three and a half foot tall uh, stand. And if I'm in the floor with the snakes, which is not all the time or really just a dog, you know, loving on the animals, I can look up and it's at the bottom of the enclosure just looking down at you, just looking peaceful as possible. And if, if you sit, I've got a chair in front of it. If you sit in front of it, it's not necessarily going to be right in front of the enclosure. It might be behind something looking at you or on top of a hide or on the wall looking at you. But it's funny you say that if you are below eye level of that animal, it's almost gives it a total different personality or level of comfort um, yeah. where I guess it knows you're not a threat. I'm above you. You can't do nothing to me, which could kind right. of go both ways. But it does seem to be out a little bit more. If I look up, which, like I said, I, I try not to peer at it too much, which like Alan said, it's extremely hard to do when you have just one. <laughs> you want to yeah. you want to look at them all the time, but I just try to look use my peripheral, I guess, as as much as possible. Yeah, when you're looking at them, they know that you got them, or they yeah. know that they've been got. You know, yeah. right? but if you like, it's like you don't look at them at all, and 
they'll kind of still hang until they they, they see that you you're you're actually paying attention to them. So That's it's really weird. It's like and the me passing by doing everything in the cage, they'll sit out for ten minutes, but once I take a peer at them, they're, they're gone. So you know this yeah. happens. Um, I've had a little tiny bit of experience uh, in Sri Lanka with wild monitors. And it's true out there too. If you ignore them, pretty much you could walk right by them. And some of these, uh, the, the Bengal monitors over there, you would see them in town right next to, you know, 50 school kids in uniforms sitting there like it's a stray dog. Um, and then, of course, I see that animal. It could see me across four lanes of road, all these cars, people walking, those little tuk tuks driving around. And I'm keyed into this this bangled monitor. I must be putting out something, but it take one look at me and start heading the other way, not running, but just start turning around, looking over its shoulder, tongue flicking, walking the other way because uh, it knows I'm onto it. And I thought that was hilarious, you know. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and as far as the babies, the same thing. I found uh, baby bangles. They were on the the beach, but where they were on the beach was in between these really large boulders uh, that had a lot of vertical surface. They were, uh, um, yeah, almost like big squares out there for the most part, but they could easily just run off the other side. You know, I would try to get a different angle to see them. And sure enough, they're on a uh, vertical angle where the sun is hitting them, where they can bask and they're, you know, they don't really have to worry about too much coming in from up above them because um, you don't have a good angle to just reach over and grab one of these baby monitors and they can dart under this boulder. They can run across the ground to the next one. Um, so, yeah, they do use those vertical surfaces a lot. I think it's a it's a survival technique, yeah. you know? Yeah, it is. All right. Um, was there a, any more of that that question that you happened to um have Cody or no, would you like to yep. move on to the next one? Yeah, pretty much covered it, man. We can go ahead and go to the next one. All right. Now, as far as your, I don't really, really want to say spotlights, but your basking lights. Um, I ain't gonna lie, you scared to death of me when you sent me that picture. Yeah. Somebody had burned the skin on it, and because it's not like the only thing that I have to relate to that, other than you know just basic research, is my wife's yeah. bearded dragon. It's underneath like 125 degree basking spot on a basking bulb. And yeah. loves it has no effect on it, but the skin is thicker than the mangroves. Right. And when I first got the setup, I think talking to you, I, I want to say it took me like a week, maybe a week and a half. Now this isn't you know, twelve hours a day. This is an hour here and there checking on it, letting it acclimate, um, just trying to get everything keyed in for the animal before it got here. And it took me a while to get the temperature of the basking spot where it needed to be, um, based off of what you said and what I was reading, and. Right. I think I even still are a little bit out of my comfort zone getting the log high enough to where it keeps 115, but no hotter than 120 on the surface temperature of that log. And it's, right. I want to say it was the, if you can correct me if I'm wrong, I know I sent you that picture. I think it was the BR 30 floodlight. And then it's got yeah. a low wattage. I want to say a 45 or a 50, 50 watt um, black light spot and bulb. Next which, to it, right? Yep. Next to it in a dual dome. But that is, the spot the black light is like on a lower or it's further off the hide because the hides go down to a peak like a tree branch so it's in the peak of a tree branch where the floodlight right. is at the raised part of it 
Yeah. Um, so and it's it's on a timer. All right. So here's what uh, I was kind of trying to explain to you. So um, the reason why, I mean, I guess for anybody else that's either got young monitors or they're getting into um, thin-skinned monitors, okay? Yeah. Um, now, this can happen with many monitors. I've seen it happen with Niles. I've seen it happen with Savannah's. I've seen it happen with plenty monitors. They can get burned and by a few different bulbs or by the, the placement and setting and just how close they can get or just the, the actual strength of the bulb, okay? Um, now, your I'm, I'm going to recommend a couple bulbs here. Now, you may want to probably write this down if you're trying to gather certain bulbs to use, but I use BR30s and BR40s, which are a kind of a soft white floodlight. And it's a floodlight, okay? It's not a spot bulb. And then I use those coupled next to a black light. Um, and that's either like a 30 or 40 watt bulb. Now, my floodlight is doing the main spiel here as far as heating the cage up a little bit. And, and then it's basically not making it blistering hot. The animal can get close to the bulb. It can even touch the bulb without burning. Um, now, these mangroves just got such thin skin that... Anything too close or too strong of a bulb can basically burn them. And it causes thermal gradient burns. And it's just those huge white patches that you see on people's monitors. Um, and uh, really what I'm trying to get people to understand is even the monitors that are very small and the one single bulb should kind of cover them. With these baby mangroves, they, just, they can just burn so fast. If you use a bulb that you think is getting your ambient good but it's also making your surface temperature really really strong mm -hmm. and so that's what is causing yeah. the burns um now i'm also having you use multiple lower wattage bulbs rather than having you just crank on 150 and 125 or even 100 watts i don't recommend that at all i recommend yep. you use that equal amount but spread out between three or four different bulbs or something like that or two or three different bulbs where each bulb is probably 50 watts or 40 watts, and then that is more spacely brought out, widens the actual basking area for the lizard. Yeah. Um, and so it basically heats them up a little bit better, much more thoroughly, and it gives a better gradient. Now, if you were to, let's say, use that all in one bulb, that's what's going to create your burns. Yeah. And now there's a few different things that I want to point out on the bulbs that you're going to also need to look out for, which is the lumens. Okay. Um, I've been kind of working with some different bulbs and I've, you know, go through so many different floodlights throughout the years and finding which ones that work and which ones that don't work for my mangroves, anywhere from 350 to about 600 lumens is the distance and strength of bulb that I want to use. And that's about six inches away to about a foot away. Now, anything that's three, 300 lumens, 400 lumens, and that's the BR30s, those are about six inches away from the actual basking area. Yeah. Now, they're for short cages. They also don't cause burns no matter how far away from the bulb they are. They can be three inches away, still not causing any burns. Mm -hmm. that's, how, that's how good they work as far as a soft white floodlight, okay? Yeah. Um, now, now, my, now, my stronger floodlights where they're the harder solid bulb that you get where the bulbs are made of hard glass. 
Um, these are 550 and 650 lumens, and they can still be all 45 watt bulbs, but the lumens is where what I'm paying attention to. And the distance between this is 10 inches, 12 inches, 14 inches for my 120, 130 gradient still. Okay. Um, now, if I were to use those same wattage bulbs, but the lumens at the very bottom where I read it on the bulb and it said 1500 or 2000, 2300 lumens or something like that, the distance between that needs to be at least two feet, something like that, where um, that's because the bulb strength and the, the actual force of the beam and everything like that is incredibly strong. Um, so not only is it spacing the bulbs out using lower wattage bulbs, but also using the right lumens, okay? Um, and now this has been helping me out with, uh, with a few different things. It uh, prevents burns. Um, my cages aren't as blistering hot. And these mangroves, they're jungle animals, sort of, okay? So it's dense vegetation where they're at. Even though the sun is helping create the humidity, it's still somewhat of a jungle mist cool. It's not exactly hot, blistering like Australia's um, open land. You know, those animals yeah. can just handle it a lot better. And so that's also in what I'm trying to create as far as an atmosphere goes. Your entire enclosure is still going to be only just about 80s, something like that. But that little gap, that little area for basking is 100 degrees, 105. Right. And then your surface temperatures are 115, 125, 130. Uh, I really don't recommend anything much more than 130 for mangroves unless the cage was extremely big and you had your, your things hooked up well. But 125 is good for me. That's, that's what I use here. Um, even on the adults and the babies. No, um, the babies might start off at 110, 105 for a little bit, but I, I eventually get them up to 120, 130 as well. And so as far as usage of bulbs, like this, the type of brand, I get Floodlights, Philips, or GE General Electric. Um, and they don't have too many more options out there. They used to have like Sylvania and, and all those old school bulbs that they don't make anymore. Or yeah. they're just discontinued in certain states. Some states do not oh, allow California. Sorry, <laughs> yeah, do not allow floodlights anymore. So we've had to. I've had to get creative. Not only do I have people send me stuff from out of states, but I now have to work with the bulbs that I am available to buy here. And so instead of sucking it up and just buying any reptile bulb, I've had to do a, a few things to kind of get by a little bit. And I now use more bulbs. On, under on, on top of the lizard and more lower waters bulbs so i'll use instead of 45s and 65s i'll use 35 watts and 50 watts yeah and i'll string those right across um i i also use a the whole coupling thing often all the time so it's one bulb next to another bulb that's creating a great gradient for me now and also with with the uh, oh go ahead cody let's no i'm sorry um the I've got a UVB bulb in there as well, which I I know you said that they definitely can benefit from, and that's that's kind of in the center of the tank. My my question is the dual dome um, that I have in there that's got the floodlight and then it's got the black light, uh, basically just the night light in there that stays on at night. The floodlight and the UV bulb, uh, UVB bulb shut off on a twelve hour timer. Um, can you? And the only reason I'm asking this is this is what I use for all my other reptiles. Um, CHE bulbs, which is a ceramic heat emitter. Could you yeah. 
replace that black light bulb with a 50 watt CHE to where it's not giving off a light, but it emits heat or is that still too intense for them? It's, um, it's the, so if the, the bulb placement was really high up and probably either just out of the way, I use them, but I do too. All mine are the monitors can still jump that space and they essentially want to grab onto it. Now, yeah. all the bulbs that I currently use, I can sort of grip with my hands, even if it's for the slight second or two, right? right. But if you grab a ceramic heat emitter, even a yeah. 50 watt, that's going to burn you. Um, if they just get so hot. So I, I personally don't use them just because your initial touch is going to burn. Now, the other bulbs that I use, they're the same wattage. But they just don't get blistering hot where the animal can even glance on the bulb or hang on top of it and not burn themselves. So um, the the ledge that the, the all, that the ceramic heater emitter also makes, um, that ledge just gives them something that they want to climb on and hang out up there. So I've actually yeah. even had them do that. Um, so I guess in, in a way, yes, they are usable, but if they're really close or – your animal can get to them and burn themselves. No, I, I don't recommend. So them. maybe, maybe just more of a recommendation. If you have like my setup right now is a 40 gallon open front enclosure and everything is sitting on top of a wire mesh top. And then I've even got yeah. that top sealed other than where the lights are to hold the ambient and humidity in a lot better. Um, but I mean, me just being new, I had no idea that they, I mean, obviously they climb and they can crawl, but I'll, I'll see throughout that day checking on the camera. And he's crawling upside down, hanging from yeah. the top of the mesh. And I know, I know they make, I think, you know, Baskin like guards, which is a metal hardware um, yeah. type so of the, cover. So I guess you could use that for bigger enclosures, like your PVC enclosures or your vision vision cages, um, just yeah. so they can't touch it per se. So the um, problem there, though, is when you do that, sometimes that becomes the climbing, just like you were saying, the uh, the the. Uh, the hardware cloth, basically, or yeah. the plastic version, they can climb and hold on to that just as That's well true. with those basking guards. So something you have to be careful. more burns, yeah, yeah. creating other other kind of burns as well, and they'll right. essentially just hang on to it because it's a uh, it's now something to do. Yeah, um, right. Now, like sense. some some clunkers, like savannas, may not be so um, uppity where they're just on, on on the roof of the cage, right? Because they're I mean, they can climb, but they don't always do that a lot. But these mangroves, they're going to scale it. And they'll yeah. try to, yeah, it's, it's just the nature of the, the lizard itself. And so, um, yeah, it's I just used, a thing. I use the uh, ceramic heat emitters in a few cages. Uh, if there's a separation between the animal and the emitter through some kind of screen or something, um, there's different applications where I will use that. Um, I also use it in some some real large cage where unless the, and the furniture is set up in a way where unless this animal has like a four foot vertical, it's not getting to that, that light. So um, yeah. I will put it maybe in the center of a, like you could say a uh, eight foot by four foot by uh, like six foot tall cage. Um, I'll put it right in the center of the cage up towards the ceiling if I want to provide the, you know, a nighttime uh, element to this, basically turn off all the lights um, where it's still going to keep the heat because of the way they heat. Uh, it's going to, it's going to be a nice heat for that kind of enclosure. Um, 
but at the same time, I don't have to worry about either furniture or the animal being able to access it. And it's purposely set up that way so that I don't worry about it. Um, but like Kai was mentioning, if, if an animal can get to one of those, I wouldn't use it. I would find another way to, to heat that enclosure. Now, um, your black light should be fine, right? But if you want another option, like let's say lightless or completely lightless, right? Um, you can get uh, the deep heat projectors. I've used these um, through Reptile UV Company, and they're the same company that makes the Mega Ray bulbs. Um, these uh, they're quite quite inexpensive for a, a ceramic heater meter that does what it needs to do. And um, even like a, I guess it's like a 50 watt or 75 watt. Um, it's pretty strong. I can kind of touch the sides like with my fingertips without it, without it singeing my fingertips right away. So, um, you know, it's not too bad, but if it's protected some way, you should, you should be okay. Now that same thing though, if you have some kind of crazy heat just directed so hot, you want to make sure that the distance between the animal, the basking spot and everything is quite a distance away, okay? At least a foot or something along those lines, maybe even more, because they just crank out so much heat. Right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I really have a, a, a slight balance of coolness that I also try to have. Let's not – you don't want to make your cage extremely hot and blistering all the time. It's just that little pocket where the heat lamps are. But the rest of the cage is somewhat cooler, like in the 80s and 70s even. Right. Yeah, I think right now um, with where I had the temperature probe at, as far as just the ambient temperature, it's on the back right of the hot side. I guess that would be the best way to say that. And it's around 88 to 92, depending on the time of day. And then the left side, which is what I'm considering the cool side, it can be anywhere between 78 and 82. And what I'm sure it's a little bit cooler on the bottom of the tank under the substrate. Um, and is yeah. that as far as, you know, temperatures, is that okay? Yeah. Yeah. Those are, yeah. those are good. Maybe even down to the low seventies at that point. Cause let's say if your, your cage got really hot on the one end, um, it has a little bit of chance to escape where it's quite a bit cooler. Right. But anything right. below like 70, 65, um, at, at nighttime too often is, is not that great either. Okay. So right. you kind of have to have a balance. Like right now you shouldn't have an issue cause you're going into warmer weather, but when you are facing winter again and you essentially are fighting your weather cause you're cold out there, um, you're going to want to make sure the coldest part of your cage gets like 65 at the lowest, something yeah. like that. And I um, think, I think that can definitely affect somebody that might have just one animal because it kind of, I'm not going to say it's beneficial to me, but having all my reptiles in one room, all the heat yeah. emitters yeah. keeps that ambient temperature of that room yeah. almost 80 degrees night and yeah. day. Um, we all we all love that benefit. Of the yeah, <laughs> I don't like paying for it on a utility bill, but it does it does help as far as the ambient temperature. You know, that's a good point, and it's something I think we will probably cover on a future podcast. Is if you are a keeper that just keeps maybe one animal or maybe a pair or a small group of animals in the same cage and you don't keep anything else in the house, um, if that's where you're keeping it, you know, you have to set up your enclosures a little different. Yeah. And a lot of times we want to we say hot end and cool end to a cage um, and just to get people's heads kind of wrapped around it now just because you have a, a hot end or you hear that term hot end, cool end, 
doesn't mean, let's say on a uh, six foot cage, let's say you're keeping a, a pair of some type of dwarf monitors in a six foot cage. Yeah. You have more um, ends than more ends. Yeah. Right. So you, you, you a quadrant of like six areas or five areas, right? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. You got to make that entire cage usable to your animal. And if your room temperature is 70, 72 degrees, then at the cool end of your cage, it might be a temperature that your animal's really not going to use and uh, not use the, the substrate that's down on that side might get even a little cooler, especially if it is moist. Um, so you, different things you have to consider about your, your placement of your heat bulb. So you might want to put something in the middle or have a heat bulb at both ends. And as Kai was talking about something that's a little less uh, maybe on the wattage, play around with your your temps, play around with your basking spots in there. If you have to move a bulb using a safer bulb and moving it down to a a level where you're going to get the the temperature you want at the basking site. Yeah. But you're also going to cast the right kind of ambient across the the enclosure itself and yeah, right. that might mean you set up identical basking spite, uh, sites on both ends of that 6-foot enclosure so that you're meeting the right temperature gradient in the middle so yeah. we can cover a lot more on that in the future but just something to think about as yeah. well and that's something i'm still learning every single day and i kind of got I mean, everything right now i feel like is at a pretty acceptable temperature as far as basking for all reptiles but mainly the mangrove but it'll always change the bigger enclosure i get like you said i'm yeah. always going to have to play and learn and like i said it took again yeah, it, it took me a week yeah. and a half to get it dialed in to where I hate to even say this, but your requirements, but mainly that animal requirements. Because I want, I'm, like I said, I think the worst thing you can do is think you know what you're doing when you don't. <laughs> so it's just <laughs> always listen, and that's what I was always trying to do is just be all ears. Um, I would send, I'd send Kyle regular pictures of you know is this temperature okay, and he said no, I'll get it, get that up a little bit higher. Um, so that dialing that in is a is a huge learning curve um, if you're yeah, not yeah. used to that. And it's always going to play in effect with the bigger enclosures that you get. Um, and that goes for all my reptiles. I'll end up having that retick in a six foot long, probably three foot deep, maybe two foot yeah. tall. Um, and I, I plan on building something big for the mangrove later on. But um, like you said, having them in a big enclosure can kind of lose that taming from what I've seen with snakes and um, just yeah. basic research. So everything is in a small enclosure right now or, not small, but comfortable enough to where it's not stressed and it, and it doesn't feel vulnerable. Right. Um, and the biggest thing is to easier easier on you to clean. I've seen some people with some decked out enclosures, and I'm like, man, that, that's got to be a nightmare to clean. And I guess yeah. that'll go into my next question is when do you think it's frequent more? Well, how frequent should you be cleaning the cages? I know with my snakes, it's more or less spot clean. And then I try to, they, you know, if they use the bathroom, I try to clean once a week if I can't just spot clean it. Um, yeah. that's more or less, I have to do that to keep my humidity up and wet the substrate, mix it around. Cause I know misting can cause scale rot and stuff like that for snakes. Um, so how frequent should you clean them? Go, go ahead, bro. Well, I'll be very honest with you. I, uh, I don't clean very often and here's why. <laughs> yeah. Same here. <laughs> yeah. Here's why in, in the warehouse, I have a lot going on and those little cleaner bugs get into just about anything so they yeah. honestly take care of a good portion of what i got you know uh i promise they're not of. lazy <laughs> yeah yeah no, no, no they just they're, they're just lazy. already breaking it down a lot of times right. the in, in a lot of the 
animals that I keep, the uh, surface temperature is pretty warm for a lot of the Australian stuff. So that fecal matter, whatnot, breaks down pretty easily. And they're running around the surface. They might basically get rid of it, you know, before I even notice it's there. Now, real um, quick, for somebody yep. that doesn't know, what are you talking about as far as the the insects that are doing that? I've seen Kai like put pictures up of them, but what? Yeah. Where do you get them? How do they? How do they form? Where does that come from? Oh, sure. it's a love, Bio love, hate. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Um, I'd like know. to say it was bioactive. It's more the buffalo beetles that you get with yeah. like shipments of bugs. And yeah, yeah right. they can um, honestly, they can be deadly too to stressed out animals. So just something for people to know that that little bag of uh, 20, 30 crickets, you see those little hairy things crawling around in the bottom or those little beetles in there. Um, not to freak everybody out. We all have them. They're in basically all of my cages, you know, to some degree. Um, but with a stressed out animal, if you pick up a wild caught animal that's laying on the ground on its belly, cause that's the only place for it to hide under something, it might let these bugs gnaw on it. And, yeah. uh, you know, but on the other side of that, they're great cleaner bugs. <laughs> <laughs> it's a love so, Yeah. I mean, I guess getting, getting into more of like, um, if you were to do other styles of keeping right now, um, going back to what, uh, what, what Alan was, um, what Alan was saying, um, doing the bioactive and naturalistic enclosure um when you use deep amounts of soil and it has substantial amount of moisture in it and it has leaf litter um mm -hmm. okay they'll crap on the leaf litter and they crap in the water dish so you know yeah. that kind of takes care of that part you just pick up the leaves and throw stuff out right um as far as like whole deep clean I don't really do that at all because that soil is it's turned itself and then it becomes more uh, I would say like a natural setting and it, it's really just been decomposing and it's a rich soil essentially. So yeah. I don't really want to throw it away. And I have pill bugs and, you know, those roly polies and I have uh, even expensive isopods that are in there kind of doing work. And these are just fancy roly polies that you're just throwing in your enclosure and they're helping out breaking down a fair amount of the poop and even the leftover food that might get around, um, just things like that. Um, and so that's, as that's turning, right. I'll rotate it myself. I'll, I'll go in there and I'll dig it up and I'll turn it all around, make sure the moisture depth is good and, and all that stuff like that. And I don't really toss it or clean anything. I just do major spot cleaning. Mm -hmm. um, now, if it was an enclosure where the bedding was very low and I do have those clay cages, the bedding is very low and um, they they kind of crap everywhere and within a, a few weeks or even, even a few days, it's kind of bad. Then I change those out more often because nothing is really breaking it down. The, the low amounts of bedding isn't allowing the bioactive bugs to um, be substantial enough to actually eat the poop fast enough. Yeah, so that's where I'm at right now. Dry. Yeah, the cage is dry. So if you have a little moist pocket, in your enclosure which is the hot side and then you can put fragments of cork and little fragments of even plywood pieces right i'm talking like little tiny blocks and sheets and these are my microbial hot spots where you're going to spray this area spray around it and your isopods will go there they'll just hang out there and that's where they're going to kind of stay and congregate and probably breed and eat and do some other stuff and they travel to the outworld where that's the rest of your enclosure and they're going to basically you know eat and break down stuff if they need to 
Um, your leaf litter, hopefully in six months or four months, will just be dirt. It's just dust. Yep. Then. And you have yeah. to add more leaf litter, you know. Um, but if you're not and you're doing paper towel or thin amounts of bedding and stuff like that, you want to change quite regularly because then that leads to like a festering poop at the bottom and yep. it's just nasty. And, you know, um, so for me, it, it gets broken down when I use it in the bioactive sense, but in a kind of like a like a beginner or just someone that's just keeping low amounts of bedding, you want to do it more often. Yeah. How, how long have I owned this mangrove? Do you remember the exact date weeks. I got it from me? Yeah. That's I would say like almost, right at a, right at a month almost. Um, yeah. I've, I've, I've cleaned the enclosure once and thankfully yeah. I have my wife here to help. I actually took the monitor out and I said, well, that, this is probably a good time for it to soak. And I stayed in the, in the bathroom with it while, while it was soaking in the tub essentially. Um, and she cleaned the enclosure for me and I, I, you know, asked her to do certain things a certain way. And, um, that way it's, I guess as a, as a young mangrove, they are very frantic. Um, it'll yeah. eventually calm down with long tongue flicks. Uh, I have seen it do the small, like where it just barely sticks the two tips of its tongue out and, and stares at you if it's in a corner. And that's one of those things where it's just like, all right, I'm gonna back away. I'm gonna leave you alone. Yeah. Um, but if it calms down and it can hang out on me long enough and, it's not hissing. It's got long tongue flicks. I'll come in and I'll stay in the same room with her. So I can just kind of see everything get put back together. Um, and like I said, that's, that's once in maybe three weeks. And it's not necessarily that it even needed to. That was one of the times where I wanted to add some sand in with a little bit of topsoil and then throw some mulch on top. And that, uh, even doing something small like that helps me keep my humidity right. Um, cause I know with, with, with my snakes, I can't miss the top and, well, right. one of two it's reasons, good. it'll give them scale rot, and then two, it dries up extremely fast. So I put, yeah. you know, maybe a cup full of water once every week and a half, two weeks, and churn that all that mulch up, and then that moisture ends up staying at the bottom. So if that snake wants more humidity, it can go lower in that mulch and burrow, but it right. keeps the ambient humidity around 60 to 70. And then, of course, I increase it um, to 80 when they're shedding, and I've thankfully yeah. had full sheds out of all my snakes. I know lizards are a little bit different, or monitors are different. Um, yeah. Touch so base with you on that too. What you're, humidity you're does it? You're doing a maintenance thing currently, right now. Right. Let's say if you even your retic. Okay. Now, um, let's say if you wanted to do this where you didn't have to maintain so much and add your cup of water once a week, right? Yeah. If you went deep with your soil, and then let like the first few inches dry, and then add leaf litter, that'll take care of your your necessity yeah. to add so yeah um now when you're doing this as an adult for or even a, a sub-adult animal this is this is talking to monitors okay um you're not going i, I really recommend you not have to maintain so much where okay. you're you're doing that so often and you're kind of having to turn the soil that often maybe once a month or every couple months great but um, once a week or multiple times a week is for right now, it's okay. But for, as an adult, you want things to be much more substantial and the water to be the water moisture in the soil to hold its depth and everything like that. So right. like, let's say right now, my cages are not up to par on humidity on purpose, but if the animal were to go into a nook and cranny or went deep into the soil, which it has the options to, it can get to 70, 80% and close to even 100% humidity. And that's the 
the option and optimum options is uh, as basically you're allowing the animal to still have this option to go to, but the rest of the enclosure isn't. So mm-hmm. um, that'll still hold the soil and then be that area for that animal to retreat to, even if the rest of the cage is only 50, 50% humidity. Okay. Yeah. That, that gap that that area went. So now when you're getting into building your cage as an adult for the animal, you'll need to, like I, I was telling him earlier, some people only see left and right, which is the hot side and the cold side. But now you have to actually think about the temperatures below the soil as well. Right. And those gradients as well. And so, you know, those things are, are all come into play. It, it helps your animal save its life. If the cage were to overheat, um, not just to mention, you know, the, the options to go back and forth, whether it wants to be drier or whether it wants to be really humid, um, you know, it just gives the animal a well-balanced lifestyle essentially. Um, always around your basking areas though, it's going to be 30, 40, 50% humidity kind of, it's just naturally the lights just will naturally dehydrate that area. Mm -hmm. Um, and so you have other pockets that the animal can get to. All right. And I, I would, I would almost say it's to me, and this is like I said, total beginner. Yeah, I feel like it'd be almost easier to keep that humidity with an older animal if you can have thicker substrate. Because, like you said, as far as the taming process with a young one, if you give them six inches of soil, you will never find it. It'll always yeah. burrow, whether it's stressed or not. It, they just love to burrow, from what I've seen. Um, yeah, even even my snakes will do that sometimes. So with keeping like, you know, based off of what your recommendation is, I try to keep an inch. So it almost gives it that vulnerability to where it can if it wants to, but it's going to try to get, I guess, force it to stay out to get used to you and then that right. enclosure as well. So it, it can be difficult um, to try to keep that humidity. But I try to use your tactic as far as 50 50 of topsoil and sand with a little, and really that cypress mulch on top and leaves on top has helped drastically because you can see that moisture line on the very bottom of that cage. And I mean, it, yeah. as far as shedding, it seems to help. It seems to hold it um, as far as the ambient humidity percentage or temperature in, in the cage. Um, but I, w- I would assume it'd be a little bit better with their older because you can put six to 12 inches of soil on, on one side, yeah. if not that entire enclosure. Right. And you'll just, uh, you'll just have to calculate it in um, and uh, like adding to, or kind of, um, blending both topics from the last and right now um you're, it's just a whole bunch of math that's yeah that's what it is. <laughs> yeah. you're taking uh you're taking your enclosure you know we, what we got is facts and what we got is uh, tools that we're using and you can go ahead and start at a high add in fixtures that you think will work i think that are gonna get your cage to the temperature it needs um, and let's just say in a six foot cage, you needed 150 watts to get that one side 95, 100 degrees, right? But you're not now, uh, like like I said, you're not going to use just 150 watt bulb. You're going to use three or four mm-hmm. spaced out, you know, and then this provides a better gradient. You're tackling one thing, but you're still tackling the actual ambient as well. And this also, as you're as the bank grows and you're using multiple bulbs in a row, that distance covers more area in the cage for it to heat. Now, um, when you're like, say at 150 Watts again, you know, you can just deduct and add two if you think you need to. So let's say you're using a 50 Watt, a 50 Watt and uh, another 50 Watt, you know, and now it's, it was winter, but now it's summertime. 
Yeah. You're now going to change the whole, change the whole setting of those bulbs where you may only need two bulbs or you took your 50 Watts and now you turned them into 35 Watts each because it's so hot outside. And so yeah. now this is your, your whole math again, you knew what you needed to complete this temperature gradient. And now it's adding the right bulbs, deducting, um, and start high so you can deduct, you know, or even if you're starting low now, you know, it's sat overnight. You've read the temperatures. Um, you've, you've dug deep down your soil and this is a large enclosure. You, you've dug deep down and you've made sure that the soil depth red is, is not 60. You know, if it's 75, that's a good, that's now my cool area, you know? And right. like he said, like Alan said before, you might need to utilize heat on a different side of the cage to buffer out the cold end. And so you're raising that a little bit and it's again, all in math and seeing just how, how things work out. Um, yep. you're going you're gonna to have to sit there a couple of days and make sure you're reading temperatures over and over, but that's just how you're going to have to do it. You know? Yeah. And some other ideas for, for those listening, maybe uh, the newer keepers, you know, there's the idea that you can plug in a, a floodlight and uh, put it on something like a thermostat or a, a dimmer switch, something along those lines. And yes, you can do that. But I would caution that because if you if you're doing this yourself, first off, and you don't know how to do it, you know, you might want to take a step back. And I know everything's available on YouTube and you can look up how to hook up a dimmer switch. But uh, for whatever reason, if that thing fails, let's say it fails in a way where now it's no longer dimming and you know, you just have the, the full 150 watt bulb going when you have it dimmed down to somewhere around 75, 65 Watts. Um, you, you might run into a problem of overheating. You might not even notice it. If you're just used to seeing that light come from there, uh, you might get busy with life, something going on. And with some of these Indonesian species, the, the thinner skin monitors you could be into a real problem real quick and then the other side of that is uh if you're running one bulb and on one of these systems and the bulb goes out let's say you decide to go away for a weekend go on vacation do something else you're not really paying attention now you have no heat in your enclosure if you're just running primarily off that run one bulb so I like to use, and it does take some experimentation and playing with, you know, more than one bulb to heat up an area because basically if one goes out, you still have another bulb work. And even if you're not getting your 130 mark, if that's your mark for your, your basking uh, site, you still might be getting a 110 with just one bulb. Um, but it allows you some kind of protection, some kind of buffer space if there's some problems. So I like to find, you know, it's funny you mentioned that Kai, but I, I have a set of uh, summer bulbs and I have a set of winter bulbs uh, and basically all the setups, whether it's actual floodlights or the mini halogens, I use a lot of 25 Watts and I use a lot of the uh, 40 Watts or 50 Watts that are available depending on the time of the year to address some of these concerns. So um, had to interrupt on that real quick. Oh, and one other thing I remember I wanted to uh, hit on for those people out there that you're, you're setting up an enclosure and you're buying bulbs. You might be wondering what, um, we're talking about with a flood type of light. There's also spotlights and they're more, if I have to 
put it into terms, it's more like looking through a magnifying glass or shining yeah. that magnifying glass at a leaf, watching it burn or bugs or whatnot, how it collects and, or how it uses light. Where a floodlight casts a much wider cone of uh, light, energy basically, and heat coming out from there. Um, we say floodlight because on a large monitor or sometimes even a small monitor, you're only getting a very focused uh, point of heat and light, and that can cause some problems as well. So it's much safer to use the, the floodlights where it's casting that wider cone of uh, heat and energy across that area. Had to touch on that. So <laughs> <laughs> Now I'm going to go ahead and uh, I'll close with this last question because Alan might know this. I don't know about Kyle, but. I know Alan said he has kids. I have a pregnant wife, and she's and it's dinner time. <laughs> so yeah. this will be this will be more pissed off than a mangrove monitor here in a little bit. <laughs> um, what is the best foods, Kai, to feed your mangroves? I know I know it can kind of change a little bit depending on where you're located. Um, and I've tried to do my best as far as what you've recommended, but just to kind of touch base on that, what do you prefer for mangroves? Since they're pretty adaptable, almost anything. Okay. Um, you know, but um, to keep it basic, I don't want to just say, oh, you know, you use a variety of stuff because people just use whatever. Um, I keep it simple. Um, some rodents here and there, chicks, some shrimp, some silver sides, crawfish, maybe a lizard here and there. And that's really it. Uh, I, I maybe ground turkey or some Missouri diet here and there as a filler. Um, but I, I, I don't feed. Um, like strictly mice or something like that. I do vary the diet. Now um, you're gonna see that I I didn't really mention much for bugs. It's because I don't really use a ton. Um, yeah. Uh, I the baby monitors. I might feed some of the grasshoppers I breed, and I'll start them off some crickets. But I don't use like mealworms. I don't use roaches much much often. Um, I could, but they just I, I don't really do that for them. Um, they're great on eating vertebrates right from the get-go you know they're in the wild they're chasing little crickets and i'm sorry yep. um, little lizards and little frogs and <clears throat> overpowering just about anything e even the big bugs too don't get me wrong so the big bugs that they're eating just ours don't compare to them what we have here in the states available typically so right. um you know i don't feed a ton of bugs i just chop up vertebrates like chicks and um and mice and quail and every, everything that the adults eat, I feed to the baby. Just mint stuff. So um, I definitely. And I've heard, I've heard you mention eggs baby. as well. Like, can you give them eggs as far as maybe a boiled egg or scrambled eggs or, or yeah, raw? Yeah, you, uh, you can kind of do a just about any way. Um, they're going to get the most and you're going to lose the least if you slightly flash boil it or hard boil it a little bit. You get, you know, yeah. you know, it's not all runny and stuff. Um, but they also love lapping it up here and there that they, they kind of mm -hmm. get a joy from just doing that. Yeah. Um, you can scramble them and, you know, spread it apart a little bit some more. Um, but the best eggs are fertile eggs. Um, overall, Absolutely. if you can get even for me, I just buy fertile duck eggs or fertile chick eggs from the Asian market. And they're just, they're called balut and, um, Asian cultures. We eat it with a leaf and um yeah it's it's kind of gross but the lizards love it. <laughs> i was about to say man i was going to go say yeah. that but yeah that's a little different yeah it's, uh, it's a little <laughs> gross but um it's it's a cheap so okay for what it is it probably only yeah. costs 25 to 75 cents per egg 
at, at the supermarket. So you can probably buy a bunch and um, it's got everything in it. It has the bird, nothing's flavored, nothing's soy sauce or, or salted or anything like that. It's just the bird flash frozen or, or just kept cold from developing anymore. And just like that. And you could just pop those in your cage. It comes with the yolk comes with all the juices and the bird and there's less feathers on it because it's yeah. barely, barely into the developing stage. Um, and so, yeah, I use those reptile eggs. If you know, you got duds or, or eggs that you just want to cull off cause you know, you don't want to feed or stuff like that. Or people just, you know, they got like someone, someone's beardy just laid a bunch of duds and take them and use them, you know, something yeah. like that. Um, now I've got, I've got Missouri, uh, I think it's is it LS Croc Missouri Croc. LS for the for the tortoise. So I'm, I'm yeah. familiar with that food. I had no idea you could give that to them though. If I if I could get something you know for them, that'd be awesome. Yeah, yeah. use the crop diet. Okay. Yeah, yeah the tortoise totally. diet isn't the same. Right. Um, right. Yeah. So yeah, you get the crock diet for that. No, I use that as a filler. I don't right. use that's, it. That's that's the same I do with him. Yeah. Yeah. So you can strengthen anything with it. Um, like, like I, I know a guy that opens the mouth of, of a mouse and he shoves a couple pellets down, down the throat of the mouse or Almost like a gut feed um, type deal. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it just basically amps the mouse up a little bit more. Um, but stuff that is like just muscle meat or just meat, right? Ground Turkey or ground beef or whatever you use or, um, just things like that where there is no bone content really in there and it's just meat and fat. You definitely can strengthen that by just adding the Missouri to that. Same thing with eggs because eggs is just cholesterol. It's kind of fatty too. It, it is great for um, some stuff, but not as far as like a base diet. But let's say if you were to use that and you needed the egg that you were using to be even stronger or essentially more nutritional value within the egg, then you can grind up some Missouri diet and mix it with the egg. Um, and so that strengthens the egg a little bit. And for me and everybody else, just not knowing too much, it, when you say like ground turkey and, and ground beef, are you are you saying raw or does that need to be cooked for them? Yeah, I use it raw. It's, okay. Uh, it's got a, you know, it's it, it, again, it's just a filler, but right. it helps out when I'm, I'm in a quick rush and I just need a, I'll grab a little block and, and I'll let it defrost and put some <clears> calcium <throat> dust on it, some Missouri, and then uh, there you go. But I only okay. use that like maybe once a month or something. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah. All right, man. Well, that pretty much covers all the questions that I have for it. And like I said, that <laughs> they'll still present themselves as I go. Just about every day, I learn something different. Or um, yeah, that's just, that's just the way anything. we want. You know, that's that's definitely what we want is just, um, you know, as much as you gather in and even the success that you have, sit down and just uh, take it all in and. There's going to be much more that you're going to have to grasp as, as, a, as another stage comes. And we want everybody to kind of be open-minded and, and um, uh, maybe relate to the, to the lizard as, as you get to these steps and you want to improve. But um, for me, it's not anything else other than helping the animal adjust, you know. Yeah. And from everything that we've talked about here um, – it is quite a bit of adjusting when you have a wild caught lizard or something that you just bought and it's a baby, the adjusting period. Right. Right. Well, Kai, Al, I appreciate y'all letting me be a part of this and being able to learn a little bit more. And like I said, I'm all, I'm all ears. I enjoyed doing, doing this cause it's a, it's definitely a fun hobby to be in. Um, 
And you can definitely, I feel like, take a lot from this. And like I said, you learn every day. Yeah. Go ahead and uh, and send me a, a notice on social media or something. I want to stay tuned and see how the progress goes for oh, you. Oh, definitely. Most definitely. Yeah. Man. Yeah, man. I really appreciate you coming on. Short notice again. Um, you know, uh, hopefully this gets to reach some of the beginners out there. I know most of the people that are listening to me are 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 breeders or keepers for a long time, but there are a few that are just um, just beginners, just getting into things, and and hopefully this can help you out. Yes, sir. Like I said, I greatly appreciate it, man. All right, man. Have a good one. Good luck. You all right. Too. Talk Bye. to you soon. Yes, sir. Bye. All right, man. That was awesome. Yeah, that was good stuff. Um, <clears throat> man, we could do a lot talking about placement, just some of the experiments we've had to come up with keeping the animals we do, you know, my mind, I didn't want to overwhelm just on one topic, but yeah. Um, you know, placement of heaters, substrate and all that. And, uh, I guess for the listeners out there, you know, some of the things you have to think about is a lot of times when you, you're getting excited, you think, um, bigger is better and it's great being able to provide animals all that space, uh, to set up some really cool design, really cool furniture in there. Of course, that's awesome. It's fun to look at for you as the keeper. It's fun to see how the animal uses it. Um, but it's very important that you also make sure you ask some questions that you're, uh, I guess, tinkering around beforehand before you ever get the animal is um, up to par that you got things set up correctly because the worst thing you can do is give an animal all these things you think are great and have it be totally useless to the animal. It could be detrimental in some aspects. Um, you know, if you're, if you want to make a more arboreal type of setup and you got four feet of uh, space between the substrate and the ceiling, um, you might have to get a couple different heating elements in that cage. One up at the top. We always like to see, we, we often, we, we build our basking spots around where we want to see the animal. And, uh, you know, I know you probably experienced that too, to some degree, Kai, is sometimes that doesn't work, you know? <laughs> yeah, sometimes actually what I'll do is uh, where that basking area is, mm -hmm. I just put a square over over that little section. The rest of the glass is all clear, right? Yeah. But the square has a, it just covers where the lizard would be. So the lizard, it's a little visual barrier. And this is another little manipulating thing, make it make it seem like out of place, out of mind, or you know, out of sight, out of mind. And uh, the lizards are—they think I don't see them. They're kind of out of view. They're—I'm not really in direct view. You know, I might pop in a scene, but that little piece of cardboard that blocks this the the glass a little bit in front of that basking area—it it, it actually helps. It's, it's kind yeah. of a trick, but yeah, absolutely. Or if there's. If you have a large enclosure, you can set up multiple basking areas. You can set up one to be more hidden for the animal. And then at their convenience, you know, you can put out one out in front of you where it can see you. You can see it maybe on a, a higher side of the cage. That same thing we were talking about earlier where the animal feels more elevated. Uh, they might be more inclined to use it. And just to, to have that experience of seeing your animal out and about. Uh, or you're keeping uh, groups of animals. Sometimes it's it's good to have multiple areas for these animals to bass just in case, you know, you might get a, say you have a pair and you have a uh, animal that gets a little moody during the reproductive uh, cycle. You know, you might want to have another area for the other animal to go to. Um, 
so just oh, I man, we could cover a lot just on setups, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess for another time we won't try to kill it all in one show. Um, but yeah, that was good. Uh, I think we should do a lot of that. You know, yeah, having we'll, we'll get into a little uh, routine, maybe uh, after every couple episodes, or even when it just needs be. You know, we seem like there's variety of questions or um the same question kind of being regularly answered that we don't always happen to cover right um or we only cover briefly um if there are any topics that you guys happen to want to talk about um feel free to, to message us and um and if there are questions you, you might not want to hop on like uh cody did and you just want us to answer it we can definitely do that for you as well we might just have uh a thing where people send in questions and we can just answer them right off the bat, you know? Yep. Um, but yeah, hopefully this helps, helps some of you guys out. All right, man. Uh, let's see. What do we got coming up? Let's, let's, I think. Uh, as, far as, uh, um, as far as me, uh, I've got things cracking off as far as eggs being laid and animals breeding or animals going in a cycle now. Cause yeah. it's, um, it's the end of my uh, cooling period and the start of my warming and heavily feeding and trying to get animals to go into that mood. Um, so that's what I'm bracing myself for. I got a lot of food lined up for the last two and a half, roughly three months. I barely fed anybody a lot. So yeah. everything was maintenance feeding. And um, what I'm doing is something different than what I've, been doing the last couple years with my animals only because i live in a totally different area now um i had to really gauge the temperatures here before and i think you guys might have heard me mention this just gets way too hot here and uh for many months of the year i would say from may all the way until november it's basically 100 degrees pretty often sometimes even like 115 120 for a week or two um and so my animals just were being so hot and um, I had to really take them down this last winter. I stopped fighting with the weather so much. <laughs> um, yeah. And just let things cool down. I also cut back on feeding quite a bit and now my animals had a reset and now they're back. So um, yeah, man, I'm just kind of digging eggs weekly here and trying not to kill stuff. <laughs> yeah. You know, something yeah. you bring up the season changing, something I'm experimenting with a little bit this uh, going into this summer is adjustable basking spots, basking sites, I guess, where I am able to lower the actual bulb in a, in a safe way down um, a little closer where I can still get that whatever basking you know uh temperature i'm looking for up in the 130s to to 150s for some animals um but doing it by moving a lower wattage bulb closer so that i'm not you know keeping on uh just for an example a 75 watt bulb um can produce a lot of heat in the warehouse in the summertime so if i am able to change it to maybe a 50 watt bulb because the ambient yeah. heat's already up you know, right. um, and a, a few different things that I'm going to try also in conjunction with that is some of the cages that don't have much ventilation. Now I can actually add a lot more ventilation too to help keep those temperatures in check because, 
a simple room humidifier in one side of the warehouse will keep the uh, the ambient humidity up quite a bit just because the temperature's up. You know, the hotter air holds on to that humidity a little better. So, um, yeah. yeah, just just little things. I'm I'm going to try to work with the the temperature here rather than try to fight it. And uh, <laughs> yeah, right yeah. right now the next uh, the next few months, especially like summer and all that. Uh, I'll just turn on my, my AC unit and it's uh, basically geared to the room where, you know, if it goes above like 88, 90, it, it kicks on and it brings things down to a, a good medium for me. Yeah. And um, yeah, I was going to try to run with that. That's been my, my, my game changer heating yeah. and cooling the room um, rather than working with all the little bulbs and stuff like that. So the bulbs get to do their normal job and I don't manipulate them and do anything else. The the lights are on the full range of 12, 14, 16 hours. Um, and yeah, just, uh, it's a lot better before I was just playing around too much or, you know, just being inconsistent. Yeah. Oh yeah. And you know, the other funny thing is I, I like working in there in the warehouse a lot more during the winter months, <laughs> the summer, it gets hot. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm already having to open the window in the morning. Yeah. I'm looking for them little track shorts and a tank top or something. <laughs> yeah, man. I just do it naked. Yeah, yeah, there you go. There you go. Yeah, listeners. Just do it. Just do as, it soon just... as, as soon as Kai gets his camera up, you know, we, we can tune in and uh, you can go put clothes on. <laughs> In the morning, man, it's just me, boxer shorts. You're lucky if I have a shirt on and I'm just working, you know, all freedom and everything. And it's like, it's one of the best things ever, man. It's just you and your zone. <laughs> making it. I can imagine. So, you know, I got to get dressed a little bit to go over to the warehouse. But if I could, yeah. you know, I'd probably, yeah, some slippers, some boxer shorts, cup of coffee and start my day. Yeah. <laughs> right, man. That's, that's where it's at. All right. We are coming up on about two hours. So thank you guys out there for listening. Kai, anything you want to add before we, uh, before we shut this down? No, I think we're good. Uh, we're able to cover a good amount and we're, we did pretty well. I think so. Yeah. All on right. to the next, on to the next one. Um, I guess the next one we'll, we'll, we'll prepare a guest, um, some, some breeder or longtime keeper, maybe someone with, a different insight than what everybody else is everybody else has been teaching a little bit yeah um, but yeah stay tuned for that i like it i like it all right everybody again we are the uh monitor keeping podcast this is the end of episode three so thank you if you're sticking with us uh so far it's always funny to hear myself talk trying to listen back to this so uh, uh i thank you for the good feedback i've been getting from a few of you please you know i'm i'm not shying away from any type of criticism. Um, so anything helpful that we can add, if I say, um, too much, which I know I do little things like that, uh, go ahead and send me a message, reach out. Uh, Kai, where can people find you? They can find me on uh, Facebook, um, and Instagram. Uh, my Facebook is just my name. It's Kai fan, K H A I space P H A N. Um, and, uh, on Instagram, I'm big underscore lizard. 103 uh it's big underscore lizard one the letter o the number three at yahoo.com um but you know i'm also now available everywhere i'm on youtube as well um <laughs> you can find me at mangrove mecca uh it's mangrove and mecca m-c-c-a 
Um, and you might typing in my email address that I gave you, you might be able to find me also on TikTok and some other stuff like that as well. Um, but stuff. I'm, I mean, pretty easy to find. Easy. <laughs> Type in mongrove monitors and you'll find Kai. Let's put it that yeah, way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just ask, just ask. And don't believe anything they told you. Or believe it all. Or believe it all. Just believe, or believe it all. Uh, all the good stuff. Um, yeah. me, you can find on Facebook at origins reptile, uh, on Instagram at origins underscore reptile. And of course now the podcast too, you know, you can find us on all major platforms doing this thing. Um, and again, our podcast, uh, the help getting this whole thing started. If you're a, a fan of monitor lizards and, uh, you want to reach out, um, ask these questions and interact with us. We'd love to do it, but this is made possible in part by uh, the Morelia Python radio network. Uh, Eric over there really lending out a hand to us, helping us along, getting things figured out, just some general knowledge, answering questions we didn't even know we had. So a big thank you to him for doing this. Uh, the support from a few of the, the other, uh, the others out there under the network that are doing their own thing, I encourage you to go onto the website, uh, Morelia Python Radio Network.net. Check out the other podcasts. If you like one reptile, there's probably a good chance you like a bunch more, or at least you're interested in. And there's some great guys out there. So take a listen, poke around, look at the website. They got some uh, cool stuff on there, a store. And if you are so inclined, go ahead and um, get on with the Patreon and Everything that you add comes through and helping getting content out there, whether it's monitors, whether it's Morelia or other animals. So, um, yeah, I really appreciate that if you do. All right. I think we are headed out. Uh, thank you guys for listening. And thanks, Cody Allen, for coming on and uh, being brave enough to be in the hot seat a little bit. Thank you, guys. Thank you.